This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we're having conversations about how to do good better and faithfully. Hi, welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we're seeking to do good better and faithfully. I'm Kent Annan, and joined by my co-host Jamie Ayton, and we're really grateful that Bob Smetana is with us today. Bob is an award-winning religion reporter and editor who spent two decades producing breaking news, data journalism, investigative reporting profiles, and features for magazines. Most notably, he served as senior writer for Facts and Trends and senior editor of Christianity Today, religion writer at The Tennessean, and correspondent for Religion News Services. Bob's the author of The Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters, which was just recently named a Christianity Today's 2023 Book Awards. Bob, welcome to our show. Glad to be here. Well, Bob, you know, today we really want to dig in with you about what does it look like to do good in an ever-changing world, and especially about how the church is changing and to look at some of these trends. But before we dig into that, Kent and I actually wanted to touch base on another issue that you actually only mentioned the word a couple of times through your book. So I actually searched the whole book because I remember back in 2016, I had just gotten back from responding to the Baton Rouge flood. We took a team of about 18 down to help. But then about a month later, I read an article by you, and it was on a different type of crisis that... I, for one, am not prepared for, and I'm actually kind of embarrassed that we don't even teach this in our courses. And so I think it's something that we want to dig in to start with today, which is to look at the apocalypse meow. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, so you wrote this great article back in 2016, and the title of this article is Apocalypse Meow, How a Cult That Believes Cats Are Divine Beans Ended Up in Tennessee. So again, we talk on small issues, big issues, but this is one of the crises that we're just not prepared for. Yeah, that was one of my favorite stories ever. It's a great headline, isn't it? Oh, it's wonderful. That was a fun story. So that story actually, it's interesting. So I cover, one of the things I cover is sort of what I call weird religion, which is sort of off the mainstream, Mm -hmm. which reveals a lot about normal religion, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, everyone's beliefs are weird to outsiders. So if I were to say to you, I have become enlightened and know the secrets of the universe because I fell asleep under a tree, you'd go, I don't know about that. (laughs) If I say, I have gotten this revelation from God in a cave, and an angel came talk to me, you'd say, well, that's very nice, but I'm not really interested. If I say this guy walked on water and he's the maker of the universe, you'd say, well, that's a very nice story. Or if I said, I'm going to lead a revolution for my people because a bush was on fire and it told me to, you might lock me up. <laughs> but these are all familiar religious stories. Mm-hmm. So the, the Apocalypse Meow group was a group. I've been covering weird religion my whole career. And this was a group, this fascinating group. They had been an end times Pentecostal church. So kind of normal, kind of very end times, though they had done, they'd started out sort of normal, well, normal. They started out more recognizable. Right. And then they were doing end times things, so they were doing predicting when the end is coming, and they were doing sort of bug out runs. So they said, well, the, when the end comes, here's where we're all going to meet, and where's all your stuff in the basement that you have to keep yourself safe. And then they got a new minister, and she's very charismatic, and she began to 
sort of little by little woo people into a cult of personality, mm-hmm. which involved, you know, worshiping her as sort of the new Jesus or the new Mary Magdalene kind of mm-hmm. back, and kind of Eastern religion, all kind of stuff. And eventually the cat worship. So they would rescue cats mm-hmm. thinking that the cats would are, they related the cats to the 144,000 in the book of Revelation. They were going to rescue them at the, the apocalypse. That's a lot of cats, by the yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they did this. Yeah, people had 20 and 30 cats in their houses, and they, they were in Washington State, and that got controversial. So they left, and they moved to Tennessee, and they, were, they pretty much took over the local humane center and were res- you know, doing this cat rescue, this group called Eva's Eden. And it was they would come to your actually they would come to the grocery store in my neighborhood. They had a van, or not a van, a trailer it was clear, and they had these kittens running around. My daughter went and played with them when she was younger, mm-hmm. and they had kind of an Egyptian looking cat. But then it was this weird kind of cultish group or cult of personality. But you know what you learn from that is one thing is that everyone's beliefs are weird, but two that you don't join a group like that. You don't start at let's worship our pastor and rescue cats. So that we'll be safe in the apocalypse. You start by, we're so glad you're here and we have a relationship mm-hmm. with you. And we kind of move very slowly. And by the time you are get to the cat rescuing end of the world, you're so far in, you will go along for the ride mm-hmm. because of all the relationships. Yeah, you, you, don't, tell that, you show that really well in the story. Yeah, so it's really a great story. We've tried a couple of times to think about making a movie of it, or mm-hmm. but that hasn't happened yet. So, But there's a story in there. It's hard because they were good at erasing the traces. They got rid of a lot of their older footage and stuff, so it's hard to mm. recreate visually. But it's they're still they moved now after I wrote about them. Finally, they disappeared after I wrote about them, mm. and they're <laughs> somewhere on the loose now. I think in Kentucky, but mm. still rescuing cats. I'm I'm also now feeling nervous if, about my own salvation if that were the case because of my severe cat allergy. I'm not oh, sure what the oh, implications no, are there. You're predestined so, to that. Yes. Yeah, so. so they're not the only end times cat rescue place, though. Wow. So the it's right. called the Best Friends Animal Sanctuary out in Utah was started by end times cultists, end times Satanists who used to be Scientologists in the UK. And kind of, they were called the Process Church of the Final Revelation or something like this. And they were, you know, they worshiped Satan and they were different from the Satanic Church, but they had been Scientologists. And then they kind of, their guy was a new Messiah, but they thought Satan and Jesus were, you know, kind of both worthy of veneration and, and following. And then they moved from England to like Mexico and they almost got killed in a disaster in a hurricane. Mm. And they were rescuing pets along the way. And then they set up a bunch of like, kind of sect houses around the country. And then eventually they were like, the end of the world is too much work. And starting a <laughs> kind of obscure religious cult is weird. Let's just rescue pets. Mm, and then they started this giant rescue pet rescue, and they're very much kind of a normal mainstream. They're really known for the no-kill shelter movement. Oh, One of the reasons we have that, the no, yeah. no-kill shelter so big is that this group now has the biggest no-kill shelter in the country. But they started with these kind of obscure religious roots. Well, you know, as we reflect on what you're sharing there, and as we were going back through your article in preparation today, you had this one line, very similar in the story as our conversation, which you just kind of set the stage of this is kind of what's going on, a little bit about what we know. And right before you dig into your article, about halfway in there, you have the sentence where you say, it's the latest chapter in a complicated mashup of spiritual experimentation 
charismatic leadership and cute cat videos. And I couldn't help but to think you predicted the changes that you've written about here in this like a bigger metaphor for what's going on in the American church. It probably is. Oh, it's an interesting time, isn't it? It is. It is. So tell us more, like transitioning from that and with what the sentence Jamie just read. But or else um, I'll want to stay on this the yeah, rest true. of the podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, I have thought about like so, how and then there's the snake handling. Book, right? There's a lot of other stories right. of oh, your snake son. handling is great. We'll have to have, to have you back for yeah. that one. Okay. Uh, so tell us about uh, your book. You covers you know so much good about where we are right now, religious landscape, where things are going. We can give a quick synopsis on what you found as you're looking at religious landscape like for now and where you think it's going. Sure. So I, I wanted to give people kind of a look at why churches are in decline. So we know mm-hmm. that organized religion is decline. Fewer people identify as religious, fewer people identify as Christian, and Pew Research is predicting that by 2070 in the next 50 years, less than half of Americans will identify as Christian. We know the average congregation has really shrunk. The average congregation 20 years ago, when I started covering religion, was 137 people. Now the average congregation is 65 people. Mm. So local congregations have declined. Mm. We, at the same time, have seen the kind of growth of bigger and bigger churches. So the average person goes to a church with 400 people. So if you go to church, you go to a big church. Mm -hmm. You don't go to a local neighborhood church. That's for a whole number of reasons. A lot of it has to do with birth rates and switching, right? So... There's a great, I heard a great line from a sociologist, why don't people go to church? Because they're dead. <laughs> and the point was that old people go to church. Right? Mm-hmm. We had, a, we, especially in the United States, we had a kind of, especially from the middle of the 19th century on, a kind of a boom in church going. Uh-huh. The older generation are the people. So there was the kind of line years ago, this is not your grandmother's church. Right? If you have a big mega church, they'd be somebody with guitars and stuff. Well, the reality is your grandmother keeps your church alive. Right. And their grandkids, if they go to church, are not looking like them. Right. So Mm. older Americans are mostly white, mostly Christian. They believe that men should be in charge. Right. So I tell people, I just had my daughter just had a baby. So I have a granddaughter now who's beautiful. Her name is Verity. Congratulations. So beautiful. Right. Just this week. (laughs) Just this week. So Verity, the world I was born into, I was born in 1965. The world country was mostly white mostly Christian, the Protestants were in charge, the men were in charge, the nuclear family is the center of life. We had kind of a thriving blue-collar economy, and church was what you did if you were a good person. Go to worship. If you didn't go to church, you went to synagogue or mosque or somewhere else. So now, she's already been born to the most diverse generation in American history, so half of her peers will not be white. And the world has increasingly become egalitarian, pluralistic with a kind of LGBT affirming new definition of what families are. The blue collar economy is gone and the fastest growing group segment of American culture are the nuns, people with no religion. So it's a whole different universe. So almost all the churches in America were built for this old world. That's mostly white and mostly Christian and male dominated and nuclear family centered. And the new world is not that, and they're not prepared for that. Now at the same time, we've had a kind of polarization. So you have people have segregated themselves into kind of like groups so that they won't live near people who look like them, vote like them, believe like them, and make the same consumer choices that are, they are. And the way you get something done, things done in that world is to say the other group is the problem. So you might have the same ideas of like how to work on immigration or all kinds of different issues of abortion. Actually, there's a lot of consensus on what Americans want to do, but nobody can get anything done because of this polarization, you don't want to work with the other team. And if you criticize your team, you're seen as, well, you're, what, are you one of them? Mm-hmm. So 
And then you have more people leave religion who came. So you had the way they build a church, this is kind of a long answer, but the way you build a, a religious movement is to practice your religion, have kids, pass it on to them, they pass it on to their kids. What happened in America, at least among white Christians, is they stopped having as many kids, they stopped bringing those kids to church, and few of those kids stayed. And mm-hmm. so you have this kind of demographic decline that you can't out-strategize, you can't figure out a way mm-hmm. out, it's just going to be there. And more people leaving than coming in, you're going to have decline. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a long picture of it. That's how we got here. And what do you say, because I mean, you attend church, you talk in your book about attending church, uh, think about people listening. So that's the demographic reality. Mm-hmm. There's somewhere, you know, maybe it's still just going to decline because of statistics. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the, the strategy part, I guess, but sort of like what can do well or where are you seeing growth that seems like so, healthy growth as you've looked at churches? You've seen a couple of things. One is you see people who say, okay, we can't do things the way we used to do. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you change your theology. It does mean you think, oh, well, how do we change our approach? I've seen some churches where... There's a great church out in example, several great churches, this example on the West Coast, where it's an older, this is an older, more progressive kind of Methodist church, where they, downtown church, really, you know, pre-Civil War founded, now is in decline. So they started, they brought in two pastors, and they began to rebuild the church. They began to kind of nurture the older folks in church and start something new side by side, and eventually the new things grew. But they really focus strongly on spiritual development. They say they put the method back in Methodism. You know, the beginning of Methodism has a very clear kind of method for, which involves classes and intentional work on your spiritual life that they have really dived into. And so they have found that's a way to build their congregation and bring people in, people who may have been hurt in other churches or people who don't think, who want to be really intentional about this. So you can build that by focusing on spiritual development. You get a lot. There's a church up in Seattle that this is a little bit older story, but what they did was they were an older church that was healthy, but not really vibrant for the future. And they said, well, but they were renting space to a multi-ethnic congregation. So they said, oh, well, why don't we join them? Instead of them joining us, why don't Mm -hmm. we join them? Mm. And the church had been healthy enough to say, we don't have a real great feature. What do we do? And they had a good relationship with the church. So sometimes you'll see a church close and they sell it to a different group or they rent space to them. Or they'll say, you can come join us. In this case, they said, well, you no, we'll join you and let you be in charge. Mm-hmm. And that church continued to grow and flourish. But some of it starts with just saying, we can't do what we used to do. And we have to change, and not the change isn't really theology, but it's approach and how you. There's a whole group of people doing sort of church revitalization that they hire people they call pastor entrepreneurs, not pa- mm. no chaplain entrepreneurs. Mm. So they're a chaplain to the other folks. They say, "Hey, we love what you've done. You've done really great things. Can we do something new together? And it might change, but there's kind of bringing instead of saying you were t- wrong." And I was part of a congregation like this in Chicago that was, and this is back in the 80s, where they were like, we're old, we don't know what we're doing. You young people can come in and be in charge. I feel now I'm the old guy in church. What is that song? <laughs> Do we have to sing it so many times? I don't know any of these words. I'm not, I don't, I'm not connecting with this. But you young people are in charge. That's good. So what there is? has to be kind of a, a giving up of control and a realizing this other people 
have something to offer. I like that. And that human demonstrating <clears throat> humility kind of in yeah. serving the greater purpose and mission related to that. And what we do with better Samaritan and here at HCI, what are you seeing as trends for churches related to this, but a little bit different topic for how churches are serving in local communities, specifically serving for, you know, practical immigrants, like poverty, like these kind of so, issues. So that's the kind of ironic things. We have this decline of congregations. We have a kind of people identify religion. We have this still reliance on churches to do good things, right? So who resettles refugees in the United States? Religious groups. Churches, Jewish groups, they are the folks that they're the main people who resettle refugees. But a large number of congregations have food ministries, they have tutoring programs, they have AA meetings. They have all this kind of wide range of things that they're due for their neighbors. So and during the pandemic, the number of people offering food and assistance grew because people need it. Like So in the neighborhood I live in, I live in Woodstock, Illinois. We just moved there. 2021 from Nashville. And they have a, there's a two or three little churches, right? So the, in the pandemic hits, they have a food pantry in town. It closes because they lose their lease. The local food bank comes and says, can you help us to these churches? They say, okay. One of them's got a big parking lot. The other one's got some old volunteers. They band together. They start a every other week mobile food pantry that serves people every other week with a week of groceries. You just drive up and you get your stuff or you can pick it out yourself. But, you know, they're trying to be, they had, during COVID especially, they're trying to be safe. But they still have this thing going. And they just did that because that's what churches do, right? When something goes wrong, they help out. So we are still relying on churches to do all those things. Mm -hmm. But we, they're doing it with fewer people and less resources. And so if a church closes, like the church I had mentioned earlier that where the young people came in, well, that church eventually now just closed this year, early this year. When it closed, the food pantry in the church closed. Mm. It's no longer there. So mm. they gave some of the money to the other food ministries. But the great part about organized religion, and I'm a real champion of this, even though we get people talk about religion, our relationship, and organized religion gets a bad name in especially evangelical circles because you want to have you don't want institutions. You want to have this fiery relationship. Well, you got to have organization to get anything done, right? And what mm -hmm. does a congregation do? They congregate people together. They teach them that these are the values we have. You should go out and make the world a better place. You should follow God. You follow Jesus. You should change your life. Then they send people out, and they have their phone numbers. And they <laughs> have, right? And they can do training. So the disaster relief kind of work, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. How does that get done? doesn't get done hazardly. People just didn't think, oh, my gosh, there's a tornado. Maybe we should do it. They were like, long before a tornado hit, they were training people. Mm -hmm. They were teaching people who respond. They were raising money. They were buying equipment so that when the tornado hits, they're ready to help. Mm -hmm. So it's that organizational energy that gives the kind of directs the beliefs into real-life action. Mm -hmm. And to stay on that and to take it a kind of in a slightly new direction, though, as you were talking about the shifts in the demographics, you know, the role of <laughs> older individuals in their congregations and communities. But I remember a couple years back when you were working on a story and you'd called me up and one of your questions, and I normally don't feel like I'm caught off guard by a question, <laughs> you know, and whenever, you know, somebody like starts to, before an interview, they always say like, you know, is it okay if we use whatever you say? And I'm always like, as long as you don't think it's going to get me fired. And even if so, it's okay. You know, I'm always game for whatever yeah. the question is. But you asked me a question that really stumped me cold. And you had asked, well, if the churches are getting older and that's who most of the volunteers are and churches are shrinking, who's going to do all the volunteering? And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit yeah. about how you see the connection of these bigger trends kind of yeah, down this, at that local level, especially in the disaster world. This is going to be a, a problem, right? Mm -hmm. This is, I think, that conversation. One reason we have this book is that conversation 
when I finished, I think I was doing a story on some disaster somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then I called you and I was like, wait, these are all old people. They're just old religious people and they're going to die and there's no one to replace them. So we're not thinking about that, right? But I can still see like looking out my study and for like five (laughs) minutes, like not doing anything, just thinking like, oh my gosh, he's right. (laughs) The volunteer apocalypse. So you can have some people, I know some groups are starting to think about what do we do? Mm-hmm. How do we attract other people, bring them in? They're going to have to. So religious groups are a large number of the volunteer, mm-hmm. what do they call them? The VOAG groups. Volunteer. Yeah, National Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster. disaster. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of religious people in there. They often just use their own people. So they may have to think about how do we get other people involved? How mm-hmm. do we partner with them? So we have our expertise, but we're going to have to bring in new people, right? We're going to have to show, we may have to be flexible on who we let join our training and who we let, doesn't mean you give up who you are, but you might have to say we can work alongside with more untrained volunteers and get them a systemized ways to get in. Mm -hmm. You may have to say that we do this thing. Can you join us? Because you may just need people and maybe to come to people before you're desperate would be better. I think this is the thing that people are I'm about to go meet with some disaster relief groups next year mm. to talk about this. Like, what do we do? Mm-hmm. They don't know. And, mm-hmm. But I think having, looking at the data and going, we have a problem. And then I think it helps the outside world to say, wait, something important is happening here. Mm-hmm. And we lose organized religion. We lose this part, too. Mm-hmm. And they're not all bad. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think... A little more humility would help. I think for religious groups, too, for Christian groups, they have to say we're not in charge anymore. That's mm. really hard. It's really hard to say we don't want – I was thinking about – so we're in Wheaton. I probably can tell use this analogy. But did you ever read Lord of the Rings? You know that story? Okay, we, right? we, we've got uh, okay, you Tolkien's got Death, Tolkin right? Death. You have Tolkin's Death. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, right? You have so, Tolkien's Death here. C.S. Lewis so I, I was listening to it earlier this year on a drive somewhere. So you know who Saruman is, right? Saruman is this wizard who is a good guy. When you first meet him, he's supposed to be a good guy. And he's supposed to be a good guy, and he's been good, he's a leader. But when things go south, he makes a play for power. Goes really badly. Still valuable. So they come to him, and they say, look, you messed up, but we need your help. Could you be a partner in this? And he says no, because he doesn't want to be a partner if he's not in charge. If he can't be the king, he's one. And there's a little bit of the church in that, right? In our culture, when you have been the kind of, you know, the culture gave the church, reinforced church's values, it, especially on sexuality and things like that, it gave people a place of privilege, a place of respect and deference, then you lose that and you realize we're going to be peers with other people and have to work together. You can withdraw or you can fight over control or you can say, I'm going to be a good neighbor. So we have people congregations and religious groups are going to have to say, well, how do we be a good neighbor in this thing? It may mean working alongside people we don't agree with mm-hmm. for the greater, because the good thing about churches. So the bad thing about churches is they're human and human beings do terrible things, right? Mm-hmm. We have to admit that they do terrible mm-hmm. things, but the good thing about churches is they have always had, even despite their failings, have had this idea that their ministry is to build a world where everyone can thrive. So they built all these institutions where that serve all kinds of people that aren't their members. Mm-hmm. So they it's a part of the DNA of churches to do that. Mm-hmm. But it's easier to do that when you're in charge and you help everyone thrive than mm-hmm. to be, well, we have to help people thrive and we're not going to be tapping ourselves on the back for it. We're not going to be in charge of the culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Shifting you slightly, but it just brought to my mind a question about, like, as you've covered different stories and we know that you've covered disasters and different things, have there been any, any through lines, principles, approaches that you've found between people who serve really well? Like, it seems like humility well, a, you just mentioned, yeah, but what are, good one. What are think, uh, themes that you've... I think the whole presence is there when people show up, you know, mm-hmm. when someone's got a tree on their house and, or someone's house has been destroyed and someone comes alongside them and says, well, let's give a hand here. Mm-hmm. There's a real presence there, a kind of ministry of presence. When they're, you're talking with people and you're kind of certain you don't want something from them. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the more difficult part is, you know, sometimes people pray with disaster areas. But if there's a, like, I'm going to do this because you, I'm going to hold out this thing because you are a project for me. That right. doesn't go as well. Yeah. But mm-hmm. if there's like, and then the inviting people in. So this church that just closed in Chicago, their food pantry thrived in part because people in the neighborhood wanted to come. And help out, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of openness to say, okay, well, you can be involved. Come on along and let's mm-hmm. figure this out together. There's humility. There's also a kind of, the nice thing about disaster relief, it sounds terrible, right? The nice thing about it <laughs> is that every, most of the people get along, right? So right. go to a disaster release. I remember one year going to a disaster release and there was like a secular group and a Jewish group. And like Samaritan's Purse, all next to each other, mm-hmm. right? These are people with different kind of group ideas about how the world should be run. There, hey, we just saw you. Didn't we just see you at Virginia Beach or somewhere? Uh-huh. They just seen each other in the disaster, and they were next to each other, and they're like, oh, okay, here we are again. Mm-hmm. Let's get going, right? So you have the Mormons and the Methodists and Muslims and Church of Christ. So in the South, right, the Churches of Christ, which are known to be more standoffish, mm-hmm. they're very also very eager participants in disaster relief, mm-hmm. right? So they're going to be involved. And the Southern Baptists are everywhere. Mm-hmm. And the Presbyterians and the Mennonites, they're all going to just come and say, okay, we, and they've all divided mm-hmm. up some of the work. So the Methodists do, as far as I know, they do sort of the logistics and paperwork. Kind yeah, of stuff. yeah, like the case management. Yeah, the case management. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the Mennonites are great at rebuilding. And the Southern Baptists are great at moving, you know, feeding people. Mm-hmm. And they work alongside the Red Cross to get the food out. So they uh-huh. cook the food. They let somebody bring it out. Mm-hmm. They got chainsaws to clean up trees. They're going to do some rebuilding. They're also going to do just some. And they sometimes have people who've been helped at other disasters come to help at someone else's disaster. Mm-hmm. So they're passing things along. So there's all this kind of, like, cooperation and humility and a commitment to what is the job that has to get done mm-hmm. for our neighbors. Mm-hmm. Good. That is a good in and of self. Now, mm-hmm. they all come because they think this is what God wants them to do, and some people want to convert people. They, you know, Nobody's going to say no to a convert. Mm-hmm. But they don't do that out of – it's not transactional. Right. right, right? Yeah. It is out of the overflow of who they are to do this. That works the best. Mm-hmm. The kind of like we're going to give you this as a kind of cookie afterwards, or we only care about you. We don't really care about you. Because what if someone who's had a – you know, their house knocked down a disaster or flooded out or burned down. Do they want to be someone's project? No, they just are like, are they going to listen to someone who doesn't really respect them? You're at your worst. You just want a hand. Right. And you want to say, oh, wow, this is maybe mm-hmm. people aren't so awful. Mm-hmm. Maybe the world's not as terrible as I thought it was. Yeah. I just want to kind of connect two worlds here for us. You know, you were talking about some of the challenges in the church and sometimes how charismatic leadership can turn into toxic leadership pretty quick. And we've also seen the very same sort of thing in the disaster and humanitarian world, Mm -hmm. where there's almost like this mindset of like, just trust me, I've got this, or, you know, hop on the back of mine and hold on to my cape, and we're going to, you know, soar through here. 
how do we start to overcome that type of thinking both in the church and on the ground? Yeah. So there's a real, there's really bad, I mean, leadership is hard, right? You need people to be in charge. Like a uh, committee leadership is terrible. <laughs> You're going to be like, we're all going to be a committee and no one's in charge. You're nothing happens. in the midst of an academic institution. Thank you, Bob, for giving us another level of support for why we shouldn't have to be on committees. <laughs> so <laughs> Committees can be good, but a committee needs a chair. You got a good committee chair and a good officers, you get things done because you need someone to organize. It's like part of our organized religion. So if I can go back to that for one second. So I was thinking of something to ride in. Jesus is pretty organized, right? He didn't just go say like, do these things, have a nice time. See ya. <laughs> it's like, I got these people and I'm going to teach them what to do. And I'm going to teach them other people so that there was something when he's gone, right? He dies and resurrected, but he ascends, right? He's gone. They have a thing. And one of the first things they do is they organize, right? They're meeting together. They're teaching. Some people need food. They're not getting helped out. They said, okay, we got to organize. We got some people to do that because we're going to get some stuff done. We got to have a meeting to figure out how we're going to do this. stuff. It's a very organized response. It's not just like I'm following the spirit and it's not all great leader, right? Because some of the great leaders get taken down a notch or two. Mm -hmm. right? So Peter's a great leader. Right? Peter's the rock of the church, the first, you know. And yet, when they figure out to let Gentiles in, he gets like the he gets a smackdown from the Apostle Paul, right? <laughs> and so there's a kind of there's an organizational part of it. So now I've lost what we were talking about the question. And then, but then but tying together the, yes, the yes, different kinds together. of leaders, yes. yeah, different uh, leaders, right? So you need yeah. organization. You need mm -hmm. leaders. What you don't need is people who think they're the savior. Mm -hmm. is one savior and everybody's a friend of the savior. That's your relationship, but you're not the thing. And so there's a great new book about Jack Welch. So this is a little bit of transition mm -hmm. that I'm hoping to write about soon. But remember Jack Welch, GE was the, the guy. Mm -hmm. GE's great. And after he retired, he was went on kind of tours. He taught pastors. He was the legendary leadership guru. And then GE didn't do so well after he ended so there's some rethinking him 20 years later. Was he as great as he thought he did? Or did he hollow out this thing that he loved? So there's some thinking about this, the kind of corporate leadership model of the church and the business leadership model that maybe wasn't so great. That the great leader, like you hear some of these leadership things, that the, if the leader is not healthy, the whole church is not healthy. Maybe that's true, but the leader isn't the person who gets things done. The church existed before you came. Mm -hmm. It's going to exist after you came. So I have this, know this from personal experience. So in my 20s, I graduated college. I went to North Park College, which used to be Wheaton all the time in basketball. I was around. <laughs> Not in football, but we were, you know, people at Wheaton probably don't even Did know. Did you play? No, no, no. Okay. We, were like, <laughs> okay. we would come here and we would we would play that song, uh, We Can The Safety Dance. We can dance if we want to. Oh. We stand. <laughs> we'd be very obnoxious. But <laughs> so I graduated college. I'm gonna go save the world, right? Because I've been kind of on fire for this. This is gonna be great. And I had done worked at a homeless shelter and worked for mm -hmm. Habitat for Many. I was running a habit for Habitat for Humanity chapter on the west side of Chicago, which I'm like 24 years old. Why they put me in charge? I do not know. Because I had no, you know, I'm, we were trying to rehab new construction on the west side of Chicago, which construction in Chicago, very complicated. With volunteers, very complicated. Raise money, very complicated. In a black neighborhood with mostly white volunteers, enormously complicated things. Do I know how to do any of these things? No, I have enthusiasm. <laughs> and I'm, you know, so I did it for like two and a half years. I was terrible. I just terrible. and didn't know what I was doing. And I wasn't smart enough to say, I don't know what I'm doing. So I kind of, 
it was a train wreck. And I was like a real humility to go, wait, I'm not so smart, which I think I'm really happy that it happened when I was in my 20s and not when I was 50 mm-hmm. to go, I'm not so great. Because what's the point of Christianity? You're not so awesome, right? <laughs> You're not so awesome. It's okay. Mm-hmm. You got to get to be better. Mm-hmm. But that kind of like sense of, yes, you need to be your leader because nobody can be a savior, right? If I say you're the great, everyone is a train wreck and mm-hmm. they're going on a train wreck at some point. And the more you put, if you put everything, so what's happened in churches is we put more and more people in churches and build those churches on fewer and fewer people mm-hmm. who have enormous, who are human. So we've hollowed things out and we put them in fragile containers. What is that? Kind of jars of clay kind mm-hmm. of metaphor from yeah. the Bible. We, you know, they're going to fall. And they could bring the whole thing down because you haven't shared the leadership. So a good leader will be like, yes, I'm going to lead and I'm going to train up new people and I'm going to help everyone, put everyone Mm -hmm. in positions so they can thrive. And I am replaceable. Mm -hmm. Then you can be great, but not be all about yourself. Mm -hmm. So a great leader can do that. And so I think that's one problem for churches. How do you nurture the both? Yes, we need you. And nonprofits, right? There's all kinds of humanitarian nonprofits. Mm-hmm. People who probably what? weren't as awesome as, you know, when I worked for Habitat Humanity, like Miller Fuller. Miller yeah. Fuller, founder mm-hmm. of Habitat Humanity. Great. He was complicated, right? He had mm-hmm. complicated relationships with women. But his, like, and I shouldn't, like, they are a much more, so right now it was much more personality driven, right? Mm-hmm. Anybody, anybody know who the Habitat for Humanity is right now off the top of your head? Nope. Jonathan Reckford. But he's not in person. He's not a celebrity. Mm-hmm. And his, <laughs> Miller Fuller, maybe is to build this thing, he used to talk about create a crisis. If you have like 10,000 bucks and you build one house <laughs> or you can dig 10 foundations, you dig 10 foundations. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you just like, it's like, oh, wow. This maybe is hold, a- Bob, I, hold on. I got to put this into my syllabus for next semester <laughs> on how to do effective fundraising. Okay. <laughs> so he, and he was great to be like, we get more money by asking, by not asking. Okay. But that's not a- sustainable model, mm-hmm. right? And then he became the guy that he left and he did his own thing because he was mad because the board said, no, mm-hmm. you have not been the person you should have been. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and these kind of celebrity things, you know, happened that when I was there, we were doing the houses as fast as they could. Sometimes they build a house in 24 hours. And I'm like, who wants to live in that house? <laughs> you could take your time, right? Because the process of building something takes time and you want to form people into leadership. So efficiency is not necessarily good leadership. So how is it going to, if we're seeing all these pressures already on churches, on Christian nonprofits and organizations, as things get more scarce in terms mm-hmm. of resources, fewer people, how are we going to weigh that kind of cost benefit right like because i think we see that like mark driscoll and his church and you know we see that in humanitarian scandals i mean just everywhere yeah i think like the more we need more reality right reality say yes you can be really good but also everybody needs boundaries so we started with an apocalypse meow right cult Mm -hmm. so the first time i covered a weird religious group which was in my hometown of attleboro massachusetts small town just south of just north of providence and about 40 miles south of boston they had this little group called The Body, which believed in, um, they started a home Bible study with two families, and they kind of went off the rails. So they believed in direct revelation. And one of them got a revelation. And they also became enamored with faith healing. So they had a baby born in the group that had trouble at birth. They didn't call an ambulance, and the baby dies. Mm. They have another baby where the one woman says, you're not supposed to feed your baby. You're only supposed to feed them almond milk. 
instead of breastfeeding them. But then almond milk doesn't have enough nutrients for a baby. That baby dies. Oh, wow. So this is terrible, right? Yeah. And they end up, they think the baby's going to be, re- it's resurrected and they bury him. It's just awful. But one of the experts I talked to at the time said, when you have a leader who has a direct line to God and no accountability, terrible things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's what we, you know, you can do in any institution if you say, because nobody can deal with unaccessed, unencumbered power mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you think, well, I'm doing the right thing. And if I got to cut a corner, well, it's okay because we're doing the right thing. And then you do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And you start to think, I deserve these things. It's mm-hmm. really unhealthy. Like making someone into a superhero is terrible. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you ever seen the book Dune? You know, the book Dune, mm-hmm. the big movie, yeah. mm-hmm. right? The Basically, the one of the premises of the author is that superhumans are disaster. Mm. Because they can do so much harm, right? right? Because they have all this power mm-hmm. and no human being has the moral capability to deal with the kind of power they have. Mm. And if you don't have constraints and you don't have, and we want a superhero, right? Mm-hmm. We want a hero to give us the light and show us the way because they empower us, but it all can go south really badly. So it's bad to be a mega church pastor, I would think. Not to me. I mean, there's probably mega church pastors listening to him. I think that's like a, my observation is that is not a way to build a healthy, sustainable life. And that unless you're really intentional about having healthy, sustainable spiritual systems and structures, it's going to go south. And you're not going to be able to build it long afterwards. It's mm-hmm. going to just crash and burn. And the people who really do well are people who do their work. They build something that's going to endure a long time, that has good, solid foundations, that has people who are empowered to go out and do good and to multiply it. But that's a harder sell, right? Because yeah. we want to go, we want a story that sells fast. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about uh, couch potato to 5K. You know what that is? Uh-huh. Yeah. Right? If you want to run, and mm-hmm. I have to get back on one because I haven't run in a while. I used to run a lot, and mm-hmm. now I don't. But what does it do? It's for running. If you're a couch potato, you can, in about 10 weeks, become able to run a 5K, run mm-hmm. three miles without stopping. Right. By doing a little bit of time, mm-hmm. you build your base up. You do it repeatedly. You do okay. And I think a lot of our congregations and institutions need some couch potato 5K. They need to rebuild Mm. their infrastructure. They need to rebuild their trust and relationships and systems so that they're healthy. So then they can tackle this giant big task ahead of them. Mm -hmm. Because we have enormous change in the culture and it's going to be very difficult. And we Mm -hmm. have, and right, so everyone is freaking out right now. Why are they freaking out? Because everything changed, Mm -hmm. right? Demographics changed, the economy changed, the weather has <laughs> changed, right. right? The assumptions about gender and mm-hmm. how society is ordered. We've realized that the way we've dealt with race in the country is not as awesome as we thought it was. Mm-hmm. We thought it was, you know, it's a right, it's great, it's all done. No, nope. We have not been the people we wanted to be. And it's really tiring to get to be older, like, you know, I'm 57, to realize that we're not as awesome as we thought we were. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of stress. There's no, there's people feel unmoored. Yep. And when they're unmoored, they cannot make good decisions. Mm-hmm. And so some of that polarization that you polarization, talk about, right? Yeah, and and the anxiety. And so maybe mm-hmm. you can have healthy structures that are a little, can bring the temperature down, say we're going to build things. Mm-hmm. And then we can deal with all these changes, mm-hmm. but we are in a good place. And that there seems mm-hmm. to be a need for that in congregations and nonprofits and in every institution. Like you said, it's the third time, so you set up. So there's a book called Slow Kingdom Coming that I wrote. No, it's like <laughs> one of my book is called, oh, cool, called yeah. that, but it's kind of yeah. about some of that. 
process. Um, just two more questions. I'll ask one and let Jamie uh, wrap up. But we both really admire your writing and what you do. People who listen to this are thinking about, you know, some are journalists and writers. Others are telling stories within the nonprofits mm-hmm. or within their churches to motivate volunteers and things. But, you know, do you have two or three key points? Oh, so like, oh, how sure. does tell stories well? What oh, have you sure. learned? So first of all, you have to see the story. So I tell this to people all the time. Mm. Churches and nonprofits are in the land of miracles and wonders. And they're so common, you don't see it. Mm, So in the book, I tell a story about this church called All Saints, which is in Smyrna, Tennessee, right? Small church, Episcopal church. They have a church split. There's like 12 people left. They think they're going to close, right? The whole world is falling to pieces. And some refugees from Myanmar show up. And they're all Anglicans. They want to worship there. And the pastor's like, we're going to sell the building and close down. And they're like, no, we got to worship here. And together they save the church. Right? This is an awesome story. It's kind of a metaphor of what could happen, right? Uh-huh. So only reason I find out about this, right? This has been going on for a bit. I found out, I go to one of the big Episcopal churches. They got a new rector. And we have a nice talk about what he's going to be doing. It's very nice. Very good. And they're... Tell me a little about what they're doing. Then he's like, then we're done. And sometimes you get the best things when you're done. Then he's like, yeah, I'm going to go meet with the bishop about this church that was saved by refugees. And this is the early, this is like 2009 or 10, when there's a lot of angst about refugees and immigrants and Nashville. I'm like, what? <laughs> Why haven't I, I got press releases about what the bishop is doing this and what <laughs> congregation is having a bake sale and whatever, but you have this miraculous thing. So one is to recognize that mm-hmm. really remarkable things happen all the time in mm-hmm. your people and mm-hmm. tell them about that yeah. and don't take the kind of ordinary miracles for mm-hmm. granted. It's good. <laughs> I think a second thing is just to be accessible. Just tell what happened. You don't have to make it great because it already is great. Mm-hmm. And don't tell mm-hmm. people what you're going to do. Tell people what happened. Like the worst thing is to be like, we got this brand new, you're trying to raise money for that. Yes. But it's better when you've done something and you go, look Mm -hmm. what we're doing and you can come be part of it, invite people to be part of it. But I think, and having some curiosity and enthusiasm, when you see something going wrong, part of the thing that people do is want to know who to blame or want a simple solution instead of saying, what is going on here? Mm -hmm. And also be honest about what you do because people when they overtell, it catches up with them. And I did all this, you know, we do all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, no, you don't. Because uh, I, yeah, I kind of read your 990. Someone's mm-hmm. going to find out. Like, <laughs> I, I, they made me stop. We used to do this thing like a season to give mm-hmm. to Tennessee. They made me stop because I would be doing it and I'd be reading their, I would be researching the charity I'm going to write about doing it. I'm like, no, they don't, <laughs> they don't give this money away. They're kind of lying about what they do. They pay mm-hmm. their people too much. Mm-hmm. So they made me stop. So don't make the person come in and because what you do is really great. Mm-hmm. So just do that. Don't oversell it. Find those miracles and be honest about what you do and say that it's going to cost us this much money to do this thing. We can't overdo these things, but we can do the right things well and invite people to be part of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause that's what people want to read. You want to make a story accessible. You want to say that you can find your way into this story mm-hmm. and feel like you can be part of something great or interesting or funny, or yep. whatever it is. That's great. Thanks, all. That's good. Yeah, and, you know, just as I reflect on our conversation, you know, it just, again, seems like there's such a tension between how all these things that can be strengths yeah. can also quickly go downhill and cause a lot of harm if yeah. not mm-hmm. kept in check. Well, Bob, watched an interview you did as part of a panel for the mm-hmm. American Enterprise Institute. Oh, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, it was a great interview, and being able to hear from you and Michelle Burstein mm-hmm. and others there. But one of the things that I took note of as I was listening was 
the previous title that you were trying to use when you were first pitching your book of making the world less awful. And I actually think that's a great title. So as we end today, can you help our listeners by finishing up with what's one small thing that they can do to make the world less awful? Oh, that's a great question. Isn't that a great title? I think my editor was right to change the title, but it is something, right? You don't always make the world better. I think, well, one is just don't do dumb things, right? Mm. Don't do dumb things. And if you do something wrong, Say I'm sorry. The other thing is, like, I have two things I would say. So you asked me for one, I'm going to give you two. And I assume cat videos. Cat cat videos (laughs) is one of them. Um, I would say, like, don't try to win all the time. Mm. So when people talk about problems or they talk about religion, especially in America, they always want to win. You're always thinking, how can I tell that person they're wrong? And how can I tell them that I'm right? You're never listening to their point of view and hearing them and seeing so that's one thing you can do. And the other thing is just to show up at something, right? Mm. Find some kind of thing that you're, I heard this great analogy recently that the organized religion in America is like a boat that stopped moving, still afloat, mm. but it's not moving. I was like, that's great. And I think the person was kind of calling to abandon ship. And I'm like, you got a boat still working there. Well, all right, fix the sail. Uh-huh. fix the engine, start rowing, <laughs> don't give up, but find some way to do something. It can be small, right? Mm-hmm. You can say, well, I want to just jump in and help mm-hmm. in a small kind of way. And then you can kind of learn and be patient and figure it out. What to do. Cause someone needs to unload the food at the food pantry. Right. You might not agree on theology about all kinds of, you might think a pastor is as stupid as a, I don't know, a doorpost, right. <laughs> or wrong or start whatever. You can still come and show up and help. Like, hardly anyone's going to say, no, you can't help with these kind of things. People need food. People need tutoring. People need whatever. There are ways to say, I can be part of this and do something instead of saying, because it feels better to say, like, who's to blame? It's more enjoyable in the long term to, like, grab a hold of a hammer. So the Millard Fuller we talked about earlier, the one thing he was brilliant about was, like, he believed in the theology of the hammer. That anyone can pick up a hammer and pound some nails, and help someone else out, help build a house, right? So find out what you can do because there's a million things you could do that people need you. People in the world around you may not like you, but they need you and they need your participation. They need your goodwill and they need people who aren't buying into the nonsense of society because mm-hmm. the feeling of society, you're not, you get on social media, you get on whatever we're going to argue mm-hmm. about, watch TV, everyone's arguing about everything. We have enough people doing that. So be someone who's doing something different and that will be helpful. I think that's a great place to land. Uh, big picture. Thanks for, Bob, what you do, helping us understand the big picture, you know, as well as down to this, like, ways that we can get involved that are really beautiful and meaningful and make a difference in the long term to help things be less awful and to be good even. So thank you for and your time. And a little weird. And a little weird. Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. They spice things up. So thanks to Bob. Thanks to all of you for listening as together we keep seeking to do good better. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of The Better Samaritan. 
You know, since Kent and I launched this podcast, we've covered a lot of ground and a lot of topics, but I think the one that we just did with Bob covered more than anything we've done before, from catapults to catastrophes to crisis response. So if you enjoyed this show, I hope that you'll consider sharing it with others. And be sure to visit our show notes to be able to learn more about Bob's work and his writing and to be able to get a hold of his new book. Also, if you have questions or have comments you'd like to share with us, feel free to reach out to us at hdi at wheaton.edu. We look forward to being with you again next week as we continue together in this journey of learning to do good better. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.